Welcome back to Liturgy and Lore, the podcast that looks at the fringe and the paranormal from a Christian worldview. I'm Pastor Andy. And I'm Brother Evan. And today we're talking to Doug Van Dorn about giants. So let's take a big step into this episode. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Pastor Andy, and I'm joined by my co-host, Brother Evan. It's good to be with you again. We have a big, big episode today. It is our first guest. We have our first expert on the show with us. We've told you over and over how Brother Evan and I are not experts. <laughs> we mean that. But today, we had the, pr- the pleasure of being joined by Doug Van Dorn, the author of the book Giants, Sons of the Gods. Evan, how are you feeling about the chance that we had to interview Doug Van Dorn? Well, not as excited as you because I wasn't the lucky one that got to interview him. Uh, unfortunately, the timing of it didn't work out that I wasn't sitting in the room with them when it happened. But uh, they pre-recorded that part earlier this week. But I'm pretty jealous I didn't get to sit down there and pick his brain personally. But I was able to give you a couple questions ahead of time I wanted you to talk to him about. So Yeah, it was a little bit of a fanboy moment for me. <laughs> Doug is one of the reasons I'm into this kind of stuff, and one of the, the reasons that I, one of the reasons we started this podcast was hearing the way he talked about these things. Uh, just to give you a little overview of who he is, and this will come out in the interview too. He is a Reformed Baptist pastor in Colorado, or as he says, Colorado, <laughs> and how Coloradians say it. I don't know if that's how you say that. Um, but he wrote a book with a friend of mine, actually. I have a friend in the area, Pastor Matt Foreman. Him and Doug wrote a book about the angel of the Lord. And one day Matt was talking with me, he's another pastor, we were having lunch together, about his friend who was on a podcast with Dr. Michael Heiser, who co-hosted his podcast with, uh, co-hosted Michael Heiser's podcast, who also wrote a book on giants and who wrote a book about the angel of the Lord. So uh, of course I had to figure out who this guy was. (laughs) So I went and Googled Matt's book to find it. Uh, and saw that this guy, Doug, was reformed, Christian, godly, gospel-centered guy, and he liked to talk about fringe stuff. And so I was hooked. And so I, I shared that a little bit with Doug before we started the interview, but I was very excited. I hope my fanboyness doesn't come through too hard in the video, <laughs> or I mean in the, in the interview. But I guess then, Brother Evan, without further ado, let's, let's roll the, that yeah, beautiful let's, uh, footage. Let's shoot over to the interview. Hey guys, this is Pastor Andy here, and I am privileged and humbled and honored to have Doug Van Doren joining me today. How you doing, Doug? Man, I'm doing awesome. So good to be able to talk to another reform person about this stuff. Absolutely. And uh, those of you who don't know Doug, first of all, get to know him, but uh, give you a little run through, introduce him. He's a pastor and author. He's pastor of the Reformed Baptist Church of Northern Colorado. And uh, he's author of quite a few books, um, Angel of the Lord, Conspiracy Theory or two that I've read. And then the book that put him on my radar at the beginning of all this and why he's here today is Giants, Sons of the Gods. And Doug, that's uh, coming up on its 10th anniversary. Isn't that right? Yeah, we just put out the 10th anniversary kind of updated edition back in January. Awesome. And uh, we were talking a little bit before we hit record, and I actually found Doug because one of my friends, Matt Foreman, co-authored the Angel of the Lord book with him, and he mentioned, he said, I have a friend who wrote a book on giants, so my ears perked up immediately and went and found you. So today we're here to talk about giants. I guess we'll start with the the obvious question, Doug. How? Why? Why'd you get into giants as a, as a oh. Reformed Baptist pastor? The, the immediate leap for most people is not, oh, of course he's going to talk about giants. What, what got you there? Well, it was really what it was for a lot of us, I suppose. It was Dr. Heiser, but it was a long time ago. So I try and think back about how long ago it was. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking it was probably about 2009, 2010. And he was, uh, I had no idea who the guy was. I was preaching through Book of Exodus and, uh, you know, just doing my regular internet searching for, you know, different resources of what other study was. And came across this article from this guy on uh, Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9, this textual variant. And uh, I was so intrigued by the thing. I mean, I read this 40-page paper. Just It had nothing to do with what I was preaching on. <laughs> I don't even know why it came up in the search engine. And then uh, a few weeks later, you know, I'm going through another passage later in Exodus and uh, come across a guy that reminded me of this paper, you know. 
And I thought it couldn't possibly be the same guy. So I went and looked at same guy. And so I'm like, I got to find out who this Michael Heiser guy is. And turns out that he, uh, back in those days, he had done a bunch of coast to coast shows, um, With Art going Bell? all the way back to, yeah. yeah, going all the way back to art. Um, he'd done some George Knapp too, but, and then he would go to down to like Roswell to do UFO conferences and do biblical theology. Yeah. <laughs> and as soon as I found that out, I, I said, man, I, this is a guy I gotta, I gotta look more into. So I went to his website and uh, found out that he was giving out a, a free copy of what became the Unseen Realm. Okay. He called it the myth that is true. And he wanted kind of all his fan club to, to read it and and uh, find out what they thought about it, give him feedback and stuff. So I read it and I just, you know, it was there's so much new stuff as people are learning in there that that I just completely devoured it. I went through the I went through his PDF and actually made my own index for it. <laughs> wow <laughs> that's a totally nerdy thing to do but yeah i, can, I, I had I, no uh i knew nobody that was talking about almost right. anything in this book right and nobody had ever heard of the guy so i didn't know having anybody to talk to so i just started writing because i thought this is the, i you know it was especially the christ in the old testament stuff that got me interested in it okay because that's where i've been i've been you know thinking about that for years and years before yeah. that and um but the giant stuff i mean it was intriguing and when I got far enough into writing kind of my first edition that I never did anything with, um, I thought, you know, there's a lot more here with the giants, I think, than what Mike unpacks. And so I just started writing about giants. And then I thought, you know, I bet I could probably sell a couple of copies of this as opposed to like yeah. my baptism book that sold like three copies. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it all started for me. And, and uh, you know, it it fills in so many gaps in texts that are otherwise inexplicable that was one of the things that really excited me about it and um then it creates so i like to think about it as almost almost moving from black and white to color tv yeah. or or 2d to 3d um just those kinds of things it, it never changed anything about what i believe but it added so much to it that i just decided i'm going to keep on studying this and next thing you know i'm kind of writing all all kinds of things about it and and people people these days, you know, 10, I don't know how long it's been since he published his book, um, yeah. 10 years, probably. Um, maybe not quite that, but close. And, you know, it's just becoming more and more popular and people want to hear about it. And people, people are recognizing that this is something that, that can be very important to their understanding of history and, and God's word. Yeah. The Heiser was, was kind of our gateway. My brother, brother Evan and I, that was our gateway into it as well. Found him, I don't even know how similar by chance came across him. We grew up both of us in a more um, call it like a Pentecostal light type environment of church that had a lot of emphasis on the supernatural world, but without the kind of the doctrine behind it so much all the time. Right. Oh, and yeah. he he really helped bring those two together because I was I was noticing in the the tradition I came into now, which is a more Reformed Baptist tradition. Man, they're not talking about this, but my old church might have had some of those things right. And uh, this was someone who brought both things together, biblical fidelity and the supernatural worldview. And so, yeah, we we just gave away a, a copy of Unseen Realm on our podcast just as a, a, a promotional and a fun giveaway, because I think it's such an important book that's going to uh, just be it's going to echo for a few generations, I believe, his influence, the, the late Michael Heiser, and we're really thankful for him. So let's talk giants a little bit. You know, uh, in the Bible, most people, I think, are familiar with Goliath. And our, our podcast is we try to aim at both Christian and just the curious and the people in the fringe community. Uh, it's funny you said Dr. Heiser speaking at Roswell and those types of things. That's part of the, the audience we want to reach here, too, is uh, anyone willing to listen that that might be. <laughs> fringe community and the church has put them out, we want to invite them in. But even those people that don't have a lot of Bible knowledge, we've heard of Goliath, right? Um, maybe, especially audiences listening to a podcast like this, know of Genesis 6 and the Nephilim. But when I read your book, I was surprised that there's a lot of giants other places. Is that right? Could you talk about that a little bit? Like, it's not just those two places, you know? Yeah, they're all over the place. And that's what you don't realize. There was a, I like to tell, tell this story. We when I was first kind of learning this stuff, I had a Bible study going on in our church and the, one of the guys in it had, uh, had just had brain cancer. Um, mm. 
turned out to be non-malignant, which is great. So he's still with us. But every time that I talked about giants and brought this up, which was at that point in time, a lot, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) it gets in your head and you can't stop talking about it. Yeah. The guy would fall asleep on me. I kid you not. That was his reaction to it. Fell asleep. And at some point I couldn't figure out, is this, you know, is this because of the surgery? And I, I let it pass because of that, but he wouldn't fall asleep with other things. So at some point I just thought there's something else going on here. And I looked at him and said, man, what is your problem? (laughs) <laughs> with this and he goes he goes well it's just stupid giants in the bible it's ridiculous i said well i said man you you believe in goliath right yeah i said well you you know he's a giant right well of course i said well have you ever looked into his genealogy and he said well no and i said well why don't we go do that right now so you know went to whatever the passages think in samuel or whatever and find out that there's in Goliath's day, you know, there was uh, four or five others, depending on if you read the Septuagint, they actually have another giant in there that's not in, in the Masoretic text. And then you find out that Goliath comes from this uh, guy named Rapha, which is, you know, kind of a root for Rephaim. Well, then you just start going back, you know, what's a Rephaim? You find out that the first time those guys are mentioned is in um, Genesis chapter 14. And Genesis chapter 14 is this uh, crazy war uh, between four and five kings that uh, include the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. But you start looking into their names and they all have these weird, um, weird associations in their names with giants. Like some of them mean tall or, you know, those kinds of things. And then you find out that um, these giant tribes, including the Rephaim, the Anakim, uh, the Zamzamim, I think a different version of them. They're in this chapter, right? And then you then you learn that um, the most famous giant probably in the Old Testament wasn't even Goliath. It was a guy named Og that Moses faced. And uh, in Deuteronomy chapter two and three, all those same giant tribes come up again in that in those two chapters, including um, Og. And this is where we learn that Og has this thirteen and a half foot. Um, either bed or dolmen or I'm not quite sure how to translate it, but it's very clear that he's a giant. He's, he's an Amorite, which is one of the giant tribes. And, and next thing, you know, you're just looking all over and you go, boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. (laughs) This is a, this is a much bigger topic than I was ever led to believe. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of my takeaways when I read your book at first, I was like, you know, at first I came into it, I think, um, cautiously excited, you know, oh, somebody's talking about giants. I want to read this and see what they're going, what's happening. And, you know, I've read enough bad books, not that I didn't know you from anybody at the time. Right, sure. I said, let me start reading this and thinking we're going to pick up little hints here and there. And then as you just kept presenting, I was like, man, this is everywhere. This is not something that's just a hint here and there. You know, like I, I had been familiar with the idea of David getting multiple stones when he fights Goliath. And, you know, the, the idea that may have been for his brothers, because there was more than one giant in the land and, and maybe Goliath was the runt. And, and I think that is maybe true, but there that was not, I was like, that's what he's going to go to. He's going to talk about these things. And then you pulled out the names and, and looking at all of these tribes. And I had no idea that these, all these, I call them the Eam tribes, the yeah. Zanzumim, the Rephaim were, were just full of giants. So where did these giants come from? That's the logical question. What? Where, where, why is this, why is the Old Testament so full of them? Uh, well, those are two different questions. They're related. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Take the second question first, I guess. Why, why are, you know, why are they here or whatever? Well, that has to do, I think, with Genesis 3.15. So we Reformed people love to talk about this verse as kind of the first gospel. In fact, most Christians do like to talk about it. It's not just mm-hmm. us, but, but we really like to camp there. But you know, when you read carefully, you find out that it's about a war of seeds. It, so this woman is going to have a seed. And, you know, we love that side of it because Paul especially talks about the seed is Christ in Galatians. And, um, you know, when you start looking into covenant theology, you see that uh, the covenants are all related to this idea of a seed. Noah and his seed and Abraham and his seed and it go David and his seed, you know. So that that side of it we have really well, but the the other half of it is that Satan has a seed. <laughs> it's like, well, what in the world yeah. does that mean? So I suppose if I would have even thought about that before coming across Heiser, I would have said, well, 
the, you know, the seed is the Pharisees in a spiritual sense, because Jesus says your father's the devil or, you know, Cain was the seed in a spiritual sense because um, Hebrews says that he was, and John says he was the, of the evil one, you know? So, uh, but the, the problem with that, of course, is that the seed on the other side is not spiritual only, right. it's also physical. And so as soon as you open up that question of the physical seed of Satan, well, you quickly can get into some heresy because uh, there's this whole idea of the um, serpent seed doctrine where they talk about how Cain was literally biologically the seed of Satan and Eve. Well, that's like, that's not in Genesis. That's right. not in our text. It's very clear in Genesis 4, 1 that um, Adam lay with Eve and she gave birth to Cain. I'm not saying there's not weird overtones and stuff going on in that text. Cause I think there is, but it's clear that Cain uh, is not of the evil one biologically, but right. spiritually. he's biological human. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but that doesn't mean that, that there's not going to be a, a physical seed coming from the serpent somehow. And so this is what the whole Genesis six, one through four storyline is about. And, uh, you know, it's very shortened in the Bible compared to places that you find in other Jewish literature like Jubilees or the Book of Enoch. And many, many places talk about this, many other Jewish writings. And the reason why I think the Bible is short on this is because everybody knew the story. You didn't need to go into long explanations of what was going on. There was only one view of this. And Andrew, this is one of the things I like to tell people because they don't understand this, especially in our crowd, because they will say that, you know, your view of the Nephilim being supernatural in origin is a novel view. Uh, the Sethite view is the tradition. And what, what I always right. respond to them, and I looked into this a lot, is that, in fact, the Sethite view is the novel view uh, for the first 350 years of the church, there was no other view other than the supernatural view. That's longer than America's been a nation. Yeah. And we have dozens of church fathers that record the supernatural view. And it really wasn't until I, in my opinion, it was actually, it wasn't, it wasn't bad or evil on the part of the church fathers, but it was done out of ignorance, but it was, there was something else going on with, um, with the Jews because they were the first to change the view. All the early Jews held the same supernatural view as well. This was the universal view. Everybody held it. And at some point in time, scholars think in the early second century, probably the rabbis started to make anything that smacked of two powers theology, where uh, you would have an ability for Christians to speak about a God man, okay, mm. as God, as God in flesh. You know, if you're a Unitarian religion, you don't have a problem with that. But if you, if there's something in your text that allows for that, they they made it a heresy and they started doing things to the text. They started tampering with the actual original text, something that you would think would be unheard of, but it's not. They changed genealogies, just numbers in them. They changed the sons of God to become the sons of Israel. Just very Right. Yeah. Light changes that make a world of difference in terms of how you interpret this entire supernatural worldview. And so that started spreading through Judaism, obviously, because the rabbis made it a heresy to believe anything else. And over the course of a couple hundred years, that made its way into the church. And, you know, they don't have Google um, books, so they can't go and <laughs> do source checks on what the earliest fathers thought. Um, and so they just kind of received this tradition as they were hearing it. It changed over the course of about 30 to 40 years is all. And uh, oh, next wow. thing you know, the Sethite view is what Chrysostom and Augustine and Theodora are all talking about. And that becomes the tradition. And, uh, you know, that's what Calvin and Luther received. And so then the Reformed also ended up receiving it just naturally. Yeah. And then in some ways I can't blame them because they didn't have access to first Enoch, for example, it's not like they were out there reading the book of Jubilees or the Testament of the 12 patriarchs or anything like that. These books that today we have easy access to, and we can see what these early views were. So I know it's a lot to say there, but <laughs> no, that's great. That's, that's exactly what I was asking. And for our listeners who this is new, I, I get a lot of emails, even in the beginning of this podcast so far about 
since we've launched, you know, I never heard this stuff before. I don't, this is amazing. The Sethite view is simply that when it, in Genesis 6, when it talks about the sons of God seeing the daughters of men, that the, the sons of God are, are those who are faithful to Yahweh, right? And the daughters of men are those who are uh, unfaithful, right? And that they've, they've kind of intermingled. Is that how you would describe the Sethite uh, view? Well, I think it's a little bit more okay. focused than even that, because the way you put it, it can include, theoretically, it can include faithful daughters of Cain and unfaithful right. sons of Seth. But that's not really what the view says. The view says okay. that it's the godly line of Seth. And it makes it sound as if every single person in the line of Seth was godly. <laughs> And right. then the ungodly line of Cain and every single person in the line of Cain was ungodly, which is really bizarre because when you actually get to the text, you find that the these so, so-called godly Sethites are just willingly giving their children, their daughters to, you know, or, the, you yeah. know, they're, it doesn't make any sense, right? Like what, sure. if they're so godly, why are they doing this? Yeah. And it also, you know, it, it, one of the strengths, so to speak, that people lean on is, well, this matches more with how we understand the world. We don't have watchers, you know, mating with women. I said, but also I, I said this to somebody, is your understanding of the world that in a family line, everybody is good or everybody is bad? Like that's exactly works, right? We have, we're complicated in our family lines, you know? <laughs> My brother's not on the call, so I can say I'm the good one, clearly. And he's the, <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> um, yeah, that that's super, super helpful. Um, so one of the questions we I've pondered for a long time, and I still haven't found a great answer. Maybe it's not out there yet. Maybe it's something that's still to be found. We we get that the giants, or maybe this is the question we didn't quite answer yet. Where if it's not the Sethite view, and we said it is the daughters of people, humans, mating with the sons of God. Who are those sons of God? I don't think we quite got there in that first part. Yeah, so I guess we could. it would help to go through the text itself just real quick. Sure. So if, any, if people are listening and they want to go to Genesis 6, 1 through 4, it's just four verses, and there's several groups of people that appear in them, so kind of identify who they are. So the first group is man, when man began to multiply. That's in the first verse, Genesis 6, 1. The word man there is Adam. So this is where we get our word Adam, right? Mm -hmm. So you could say, you could translate it for help when the Adamites began to multiply in the face of the earth. That would be very helpful in what we're looking at. And then it says daughters were born to them. So this is our second group. You have daughters. And who are they born to? They're born to the Adamites. They're born to the family of Adam. So these are the daughters of Adam. This is really important because the first verse actually defines for us the very thing that is in being questioned by the Sethite view. These are yeah. the daughters of Adam. They're not the daughters of Cain. If it wanted to say Cain, it would have said Cain, but it doesn't. It says Adam. So that okay. Adam, when the Adamites began to multiply, same word when we get to the daughters of man. That's the same. It's the exact same word. That's exactly right. And we just haven't got there yet. Right. So we have two groups. We have man, then we have the daughters. And then the third group is the sons of God. Okay. So let's leave that for a moment because the fourth group is what you just brought up, the daughters of man. So this is the same word as verse one. So verse two and verse one both have Adam, daughters of Adam. That's what it literally reads. It does not read daughters of Cain. Uh, as if these women are evil or something like that, because they come from the line of Cain. It says the daughters of Adam. So that means there's a contrast here. The, whoever the sons of God are, they are different from the daughters of Adam. Mm. So this is where I think now it's helpful to go to other places that we find the term sons of God in the Old Testament. And we actually find it about 10 times. And in every single instance, it can mean an angel. And in at least half of those, it must mean angels. So, for example, Job 38, 7 is probably the best to go to to show that. The verse says, um, this is God talking to Job, and he's talking about how, hey, Job, I was um, stretching the line upon the earth. I was laying its foundations. So this is... Importantly, Genesis one, uh, day one language, day two language. In other words, it's not day seven language when Adam was already here. This is before Adam was created. 
And it says, the morning stars sang together when I did this, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. It's just simply not possible for this to refer to um, men. It has to refer to angels, which is why the Septuagint translates it as angels. Hmm. We find the same uh, phrase appearing earlier in the book of Job, twice in chapters one and two. In that instance, we have divine counsel scenes where the sons of God are going with the Satan into heaven to have a conversation about Job. Well, there again, I would think that that would have to be um, angels because men are not up there walking back and forth between heaven and earth. And then you have other places. Uh, Psalm 89 is another really important one um, for people to see. Uh, so this is the great Psalm of, of uh, you know, the, the Davidic covenant. And it begins, the covenant part is there in verse three. You said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, that I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for the generations. Okay, so that's verse three and four. Then mm -hmm. verses five through seven bring in the witnesses to the covenant. And this is where it's so important. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. That's divine counsel language. Mm, yeah. Um, who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the, and this is the SV, the heavenly beings is like the Lord. And heavenly beings, there's literally the sons of God. I don't know why they don't translate it that way, uh, because yeah. I suppose they want people to know that it's heavenly beings and not men. But that's pretty obvious from the context. Right. And then uh, again, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, more divine council language. So very obviously, sons of God there is heavenly beings. The parallel to Psalm 89 is Psalm 82. And this is kind of the one that uh, Mike wrote uh, his book about. Psalm 82.1, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And then you go down to verse 6. I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. And so there again, we have sons of God. Who are they? Well, those are the entities from verse 1, that God is holding counsel in the midst of the gods. So in verse 1, they're called gods. In the verse 6, they're called sons of God. Just uh, synonymous. Now, you know, if you want to go through why this is not referring to the rulers of Israel, we can. Um, it wouldn't take that long. I don't know if you're interested in doing that or not, but I mean, we we did do a divine council episode, and and we looked at Psalm 82 a little bit, and we looked at Deuteronomy 32, and and we kind of we spoke a little bit on that. So I don't think if our listeners are wondering what we're talking about here, go back and listen to I believe it was episode two, and uh, yeah. you can they can get all that. So so the point is, you know, you've got. There's only like three or four more of these. And in every one of those, most of them, I think, are, are also in the Psalms. I think Psalm 29, 1 is one of them. And uh, Deuteronomy 32, 8, the sons of God there, uh, which is divine counsel allotment language. So in other words, the sons of God everywhere else in the Old Testament are angelic beings, heavenly beings. And so that actually makes really good sense, believe it or not, of Genesis 6, because these sons of God are be con being contrasted with the daughters of Adam. Okay, mm. yeah, that makes good sense. It wouldn't make sense to say the sons of Adam saw that the daughters of Adam are attractive. Nobody says that. Right. And yet we've seen that it's not, the doesn't say the sons of Seth. <laughs> he could have said that if he wanted to. Yeah. The sons of God. El Seth is not God. He's not. And it's not, it doesn't say the godly sons. It just simply says the sons of God. And so this is why literally over 30 sources that we have in the earliest church, including Jews, all said that this refers to angelic beings. So then you go down to verse four, and then you get your next group, which is introduced, which is the Nephilim. And the Nephilim are were on the earth in those days and also afterward. So our original question was, how did they, you know, how'd they get here? And yeah. of course, that's after the flood. Well, it tells you right there, they were there afterward. <laughs> but this is talking about before the flood. So they were on the earth before the flood. And so then it says, when, how, you know, it explains who, who they are. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them. So there was either, it was either marriages or rape. It could be either one, uh, or it could be, for all I know, it could be genetic modification. I have no idea what they were doing. Right. But it's very clear that the heavenly beings and the earthly women 
produce Nephilim. And then it's also important to mention that the word Nephilim appears only in only one other verse in the whole Bible, believe it or not. That's Numbers 1333, last verse of that chapter. And um, of course, that chapter is very interesting because it is all about giants. And this is the chapter where the, the 10 spies come back and say, Moses, we can't go into the land because there's all these giants in the land. And in fact, even in the verse that we're looking at, Numbers 13, 33, they say, we seemed like grasshoppers to them. <laughs> <laughs> and the verse right before it, they are of great height. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is what the definition of a giant is. And so then it says right between it, that we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. So notice the word Nephilim appears twice there. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is that in the Hebrew, it's spelled differently. Oh, in both places. Why is that significant? Because one of those spellings, I think it's the second one, it can only be accounted for linguistically as an Aramaic word. It does, it's not possible for it to be a Hebrew word. But the Aramaic word means a giant. So what, what's popular is that you hear people say, well, a Nephilim means a fallen one, and it comes from the verb to fall, nay fall. Right. But the actuality is no. It means a giant, which is why the Septuagint translated it as giant and why uh, this uh, redacted word here in this verse is using an Aramaic word so that the people reading it later on, you know, in the days of the Second Temple would know that it means a giant. Right. So that's what it means. So giants were born to them. And then the end of that verse, Genesis 6, 4 these were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. And so it, very interestingly, the Septuagint, the Greek translation, translates Nephilim as gigantes, and then it translates the mighty men as gigantes. In other words, it sees it as the same thing. They're both giants. And then the men of renown shows up again in chapter 10, where you have Nimrod, who becomes a man of renown. And there's right. all these weird giant things associated with him throughout history. He becomes and a giant, He right? becomes right. a gigantist. That's right. Very strange. So, Yeah. And for our listeners, too, just to, the, the Septuagint, I think we've spoke about on this show before, but is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's the Bible that the disciples Jesus would have interacted with frequently. Is that right to say? Yeah, that? I've heard, I've heard numbers anywhere from 70 to 80% of new Testament translations of the old Testament, whenever they're quoting the old Testament are Septuagint translations, not Hebrew. Okay. That's interesting. I did not know that. So I, I did know that that's probably the Bible Jesus was familiar with. In yeah. Every once in a while, they'll use the Hebrew version for whatever reason, but most of the time it's the Greek. Yeah. And so we have these, these sons of man, or sorry, these uh, sons of God, daughters of man, they make these Nephilim giants. And anyone who has, you know, even seen TV shows or movies, anything knows that the flood came. Most people don't make the connection that the flood and the giants may be linked up, but that's the very next kind of story or episode in the book of of Genesis. So do you believe, I've heard many people say, I kind of believe this, that the a major reason for the flood was this hybridization, the, these Nephilim. Is that accurate to say? Yeah, um, I think that the, I think that Moses both has that in there, but also doesn't focus on it to the degree anywhere near what a book of Enoch does. He wants us to really focus on humans. So verse five, the Lord saw the wickedness of Adam was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of, our heart was only evil all the time. But verse eight is very interesting in verse nine. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then verse nine kind of tells you why. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. That's the ESV. But the word blameless is really the word that's used of a spotless lamb in mm. Leviticus. In other words, it's a pure, physically pure, unblemished creature. It's not talking about how Noah was this sinless person, which some people actually interpreted it as. 
Um, because, and all you have to do is keep reading the story. The very, very first thing he does when he gets off the ark is <laughs> all these sinful things, right? So yep. come on, give me a break. And then the word generation there, I, I actually think that generations is a better translation of it because generations shows you that really what's in line in line here is biology and lineage. Mm -hmm. And so that then is the nod back to the whole uh, corruption of the line through the Nephilim. Noah was not corrupted in his generations. Yeah. So it is there in the, in the, in the, in the, in the biblical text, the focus on the angels, it's just not as prominent as it is in other literature. Yeah. And we can error both ways. We can make it not about it at all. And we can make it the whole, the whole thing too. When exactly. we're at these texts. Um, so that my question, and, and again, brother Evan sent this in to me too. I asked him for questions is if this happens, the flood comes, it seems the, the plain reading of the text, so to speak, is that the flood wipes out everyone except these eight humans on the ark but then we have giants again not too long after yeah where did that second round of giants come from did somehow they survive people speculate that maybe noah's wife or one of the wives of his sons would carry the dna or something like that where the bible's kind of silent right i, I think it is maybe yeah. wrong it, what what are some of the theories of where the giants come from afterwards okay so one theory is that um, one of the sons of Ham had probably a wife that was contaminated in her bloodline. And this is why we see the giants only coming from the line of Ham. But wow. as I show in the book, actually, we find giants in the line of Japheth as well. So that doesn't seem to work. And also, I wanted to bring up verse 12 here because God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. All flesh has to refer to animals men and guess who angels mm. so um that one that right that verse right there to me says that i don't think that god would have put a corrupted woman's genealogy onto the flood it does it kind of destroys the whole point um so that that theory although it's logical i just don't i don't think it holds another theory is that uh the flood was not universal so um it only killed people in a local area or maybe many local areas. Like if you follow Graham Hancock or something and, yeah. and you see that uh, it was a worldwide disaster, but yet people from all cultures somehow survived it, you know, to, at least to some degree. That's possible. That's actually the view that uh, Dr. Heiser held. It, to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense of why God needs to bring all these animals onto an ark, because why can't they just go over the next hill and be saved? Right. And also God says he's never going to do that again. You know, he's not going to flood the whole earth again. But if all the flood was, was just kind of a local little flood. Well, we've had that plenty of times. So that one doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So that kind of leaves you with just a couple of other options. One is that this is a Jew, the Jewish fable option that they tell their little children, which is that uh, King Og was alive back before the flood, lived all the way to the days of Moses. And that um, the reason he was able to survive is because he hitched a ride on Noah's Ark and Noah fed him through the hole in the side of the boat. <laughs> I did hear uh, that or he hung, hung on to the rudder or something like that. Yeah, something like that. So, that, you know, whatever, I don't think so. <laughs> so the other, the other option is that God had punished the original group of 200 watchers as Enoch talks about them and threw them into the dungeons of Dudael, you know, the lowest part of hell into Taurus and, Mm -hmm. and uh, punish them. But then he swore, I'm never going to do this again. And so a group of angels and probably men, and my guess would be at the Tower of Babel, decided to say, hey, why don't we uh, get this get this rodeo back in, in gear, right? Yeah. And so uh, there was another incursion yes. uh, with a different group of beings. Now, this actually makes sense of what we know from mythology, because Greek mythology this is literally what they tell us. They tell us that there was an earlier group of Titans that were all locked up before the flood. And then there was a second group of Olympians that came and ruled after them. Well, I mean, that's exactly what we're, what we're suggesting here. Uh, you find that story throughout the world. And I think it makes the best sense of, of why there's Nephilim after the flood. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's personally, that's my view is that there was this incursion. They were trying to replicate what happened uh, in Genesis 6 at the Tower of Babel. 
Um, so we have these new giants, they're out there. Um, you mentioned for a second that we hear about these in the Greek mythology, and I know in your book you talk about other mythologies that include some similar stories, and one of the things that I've used to when I'm sharing this with people is, you know, look at, just think about any kind of mythology. We have stories of gods or godlike beings coming and mating with women and, and creating these these other creatures, these kind of hybrid beings like Hercules. Do you think these are all telling the same story, but the Bible is telling it correctly? Is that a good way to, to think of these myths? Or Yeah, there's an interesting guy that I actually heard on Coast to Coast a long time ago. A guy's name was David Bowie Johnson. I don't know why I remembered his name, but I ended up buying all his books. And he basically had this theory that the Parthenon, the Greek Parthenon, is telling uh, the world mythology, but from and he he would said that 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 mythology lines up with the especially the biblical pre-diluvian stories mm -hmm. so between Adam and Noah and that it was basically making the bad guys the good guys and the good guys the bad guys yeah heard... well that you know that's that's a very interesting idea and when you start looking into it you you see that there are in fact kind of uh the differences of the story are at the most important point they're not in the details they're, they're in the high God and the reason for the flood and what God did and those kinds of things. It's not in the details of, well, well there were other gods that were punished or uh, here's what they were doing. Those are all those are all similar. Sure. And so that, you know, that makes a lot of sense that they that they're perverting it according to the deities that they're worshiping. Yeah, I had heard somebody say before, I can't remember the author's name, of course, because any other time I would have. Um, he wrote a book, God Against the Gods, and he talked about how Genesis is written as a polemic against these other myths and saying, no, let me set this story straight. This is really That's not what... John Currid, is it? It is. I believe it is. Might be. Yeah. Yeah. He and he says this this book was written to or this book, meaning Genesis, not his book, was written to correct the record. So right. what's helpful in that to me is, you know, you hear every year around Christmas or around Easter. Discovery Channel or the the misnomer History Channel will say, well, these are actually the first stories, the the Babylonian stories. Right, exactly. And if Currid is right, okay, that doesn't matter that they were first. But actually, that's why Genesis was written was to tell you, hey, they got it wrong. They're lying to you about this story. But it, it implies to me that there was some kind of a collective memory that had to be addressed, and that's why the Sumerian writers wrote these things and. They had to explain somehow what was going on. You know, you hear something happens. We've got to get ahead of this. Let's have the press release. That's sort of what I think of the Sumerian writings. Is, <laughs> oh, let's, get, let's get out ahead of this before we're the bad guys here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's exactly right. And, you know, one of, one of the things that I think is important to bring up, especially for some of in our crowd, is that I find it interesting that a lot of reform people have no problem at all um, bringing up other flood myths and saying, look, everybody around the world has a flood myth. That should help you see that the Bible's not just making it up. But then when <laughs> it comes to the very same, like the preface of the flood, <laughs> the giants, yes. you're not somehow not allowed to do that same thing. All of a sudden, no, no, now you're engaging in paganism and stuff like that. What? I don't even yeah. understand that. <laughs> so so what are some of the you know there your book goes into detail on this but there's there's evidence maybe give us like one of the the big ones of giants around the world what what is some of the evidence and I don't necessarily mean bones although if you want to go there we can but talking about you you talk about lots of things in your book to say like this is not just something that Moses made up for the book of Genesis Oh my goodness I mean uh North America is back in the about the late 1700s to the early 1900s, you find um, newspaper articles uh, from almost every state in the union. And I think that uh, I think they've they've found over a thousand of these, a, wow. a thousand cases, not just articles, because a lot of these articles would say the same thing on the, about the same sure. case, but a thousand different cases of giant bones being discovered in these mounds all across North America, especially in the Ohio Valley and in um, in kind of Western New York area. And uh, a lot of them were, you know, when you go back and you read the re these reports, you find that uh, they had scientists that were there, doctors that were there, people who literally know what anatomy, anatomy looks like. It's 
kind of their job. <laughs> you know, uh, these were not just hacks that were digging, you know, right. a rednecks digging into the mound on the side of their Mississippi Hill or something like that. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. These were, these were um, expeditions that were uh, undertaken archaeologically archaeologically to go and excavate these mounds and they are always finding these giant bones so all these newspaper articles and i you know if only one percent of those are true <laughs> there's still 10 of them uh that are giant bones that are real and to me it's uh, it's absurd to say that every single one of these guys for 150 years was lying through their teeth for some sort of crazy conspiracy theory that i don't even know what the end game of that would be What's so yeah. interesting about that is that these uh, these mound builders, as they're called, actually come from the old world and you can trace uh, where they came. So uh, before they got here, they seem to have been up in Ireland and then they were in Britain. And then before that, they were in France. And then before that, they were down in Turkey. And before that, they seem to have been over in Canaan or uh, by the Caspian Sea. They kind of seem to have split and migrated. And so there's scholars that have done migration research on these groups of people that the Bible ends up calling giants that show uh, exactly what we find in the archaeological record with the bones and the mounds and the and the sort of things that they were doing. So they've they've tracked right where the Bible says they should come from, and they've been chased out. and And is that what you're saying there? They've kind of exactly followed... right. I preached Galatians uh, many years ago, but it was right after I I wrote the giant book. So this is all fresh on my mind. And uh, I remember looking into the word Galatia, and it has something to do with like milky white or something um, in terms of its meaning. And there's all these traditions of the Amorites, who were these white-skinned people that were blonde hair um, or red hair, blue eye. You find those. You find the Egyptians talking about that. You find the you know Canaanites talking about that, about who these people were. And then this whole area of Galatia, modern-day Turkey is just filled, littered with these giant stories. And um, that that little letter is supercharged with supernatural weirdness, um, both with the angels and the giants, that if you know what you're looking at, you go, my goodness, this is like really, really interesting and informative to what Paul is talking about. So for example, there's one instance where, and this isn't about the giants, but it's about the gods where, or Paul near the end of the letter, he goes, don't you know that I was sick and I wasn't able to heal myself around you. And what's so interesting is if you go back and read when Paul was in uh, one of the cities of Galatia in the book of Acts, it says that they called Barnabas Zeus and they called Paul Hermes. Right. Well, Hermes is the God of healing. And so how interesting that Paul is stuck now in Galatia and he can't, heal himself. God won't let him heal himself. You know, it's just kind of a slap in the face of their superstition and their yeah. unwillingness to accept what he was telling them about the gospel. Now you got me. I just preached Galatians maybe not even a year ago. And I'm like, I didn't get any of that. <laughs> <laughs> Go read the book. I, that was the only, uh, that was the only uh, book that I preached so far that I actually put into a book form. So that's awesome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We don't have a ton of time left and I want to be respectful of your time, but I, I got a couple kind of, I think, fun questions here. So uh, where are the giants today? Do you think they're still out there? Um, is it Bigfoot? Is that the giants or is that something <laughs> totally different? What do, what do you think about kind of right now? Okay, so I think Bigfoot is um, I think Bigfoot is real. Uh, there's just too many sightings across every continent for not Us to be. Too. That's on our just the, an episode we just released. We we both all in on it being real. <laughs> but Bigfoot is strange because he has um, both natural and supernatural characteristics. So like he'll disappear mm -hmm. um, in the middle of nowhere, and that seems more demonic to me. But at the same time, what what is a demon? Well, a demon was a disembodied giant. Uh, when they when the when the giant died, their their soul was said to have not gone to heaven or hell. It went into the air and became a demon. So, Bigfoot could very well be related to the giants in its demonic form. But if there's a physicality to it, I don't know how to explain that in terms of the the Nephilim worldview. Right. But <laughs> I I do think that uh, you know when you hear these stories of these giants in the Americas, uh, what they look like how big they were, that those are definitely 
uh, remnants of giants. And I don't think that we have to go back that far into the North American record to find them. We're not exactly sure how far. Sure. But, uh, you know, there's a there was this famous now famous story of Sarah Winnemucca, who was the first Indian woman to write a an autobiography in the late 1800s. And she has a little story in there about her family that had given her a, a piece of red hair. And they told her the story that this was when our ancestors and she doesn't say how long back it goes, but it's long enough to have, you know, they still have the hair and it hasn't, you know, yeah. whatever. And uh, that 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 they killed a bunch of these red haired giants that were eating and stealing the kidnapping their people. And they killed them in these caves up in Lovelock, Nevada. And well, I mean, that that whole thing is a really interesting deep dive because they actually ended up finding giant bones in that cave after she wrote her autobiography that were in the um, museum in Lovelock, Nevada, until about less than 10 years ago when they managed managed to vanish just like all the rest of the bones. But yeah, there's pictures of these and there are eyewitnesses that have seen them and so on. I think that there, uh, you know, there's there's some pretty credible stories that if you go to certain places still on the earth, especially the Solomon Islands, that the that the uh, the giants are still alive and well. There's right. a there's a strange story of a what they call the Kandahar giant over in Iraq. <laughs> you know, people can go look up that Kandahar giant story. Uh, one of my favorite podcasters, a guy named Mister Ballin, retold that one. But you can hear actually the. Uh, you know, the suppose a couple of supposed eyewitnesses of this event uh, when they took this guy down and what happened to him. So, yeah, I think that they're they're still there. And of course, you get into the all the uh, the eschatological, uh, especially premillennial theories about um, the return of the Nephilim and that that people are trying to bring them back through DNA manipulation or whatever. And I actually don't I mean, the eschatology is not my eschatology, but the, theoretically, I don't have a problem that, that that could be happening or that people would want to do that. And in fact, along those lines, uh, back 20 years ago this year, 20, 2003, uh, you can look up the BBC article that they found the tomb of Gilgamesh. <laughs> Gilgamesh is a Nephilim, and why would they care? And what happened to his body, and all these kinds of things? Well, that kind of fits right into that whole storyline. So, sure, yeah. So that's a whole episode for another day because I, <laughs> I I really want to explore the idea. You know, I, I'm kind of sold on the thought that Gilgamesh, Hercules, Nimrod may all be the the yeah. same person. Yeah, um, yeah. Just told different different ways. Um, I guess a good final question here for this round with you, Doug, we'd love to have you back because this has been fascinating. I just feel like I should be like a student in class taking notes. Um, but when we discuss these, like, I guess this is a more general question, but we can apply it to giants. When we talk about fringe and supernatural topics, as we'll call them, you know, I don't think they should be all of that fringy because it's in the Bible. <laughs> um, discernment, we know discernment is crucial when we talk about anything that's in the Bible. How do we encourage especially amongst our tribe, so to speak, the, the reformed tribe, an open-mindedness while looking at these things. And then maybe the counter, the, the other side, that Pentecostalish type side I come out of, while also maintaining strong biblical foundations as we explore these subjects. How do we hold those in tension? Open-minded and uh, maintaining strong biblical worldview through all of this. <laughs> That's a whole podcast, I think. Right, I know. I, just throw that out there at the end. <laughs> it's a it's a tough one because you start getting into the weeds, but um, of, of some of the reasons why reform people would have a problem with these things. But I guess I would just say, let's in, you know, as we talk about these things, we don't have to go to extra biblical sources to prove anything. It's all in the scripture. And if we say we believe in sola scriptura, then why don't we act like it? Sure. And let's not be afraid of. Um, having our traditions um, challenged. And I'm one who's all for tradition. We all have traditions. Tradition is good, but I don't worship tradition, even if it's or the Reformed or Reformed Baptist tradition. I just don't. Um, I, I really do believe in Zola Scriptura. I really actually do. And um, there's a lot of things that we don't have answers for. And and a lot of us know that deep in our hearts. And when you start looking into this and you start seeing that there are answers to biblical questions that come out of this worldview, it's really exciting um, and it's really eye-opening and it can help us make sense of the world that's around us in ways that we're not uh, even really able to, to uh, fathom 
until until our eyes are open to it. So, I mean, I guess I would just kind of, I don't know, you can go as deep as you want to in what the problems are, why we don't accept right. it. But just let's let's be honest about our view of sola scriptura, and that's let's not um, let's not call people names who want to only go to the scripture and say that they're you know abusing the scripture or biblicists or all this kind of stuff that these these terms that are being thrown around in order to not not cause people to think about things that the church has been dealing with for a long time and like i said also when it comes to the tradition let's also understand that our tradition on this particular matter changed over the course of time yeah. so there's that yeah that's great and you know one of the things the reasons like i said we wanted to even do this podcast my brother and i is it seems like the world is having these conversations you know there's if you look on youtube or netflix what are kind of the most popular shows i mean graham hancock's netflix special that eight episode yeah apocalypse is just it's always up at the top three yeah. people are loving watching this stuff and I want to say to people, we have the answers. We we can answer this. We have a better answer, a more satisfying answer, and a tr ultimately what matters most, the true answers to this. Let's let's have a voice in this conversation and speak to these. These are not hidden things. Uh, they're only hidden because we refuse to look into them. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that they're hidden. They're right there in plain sight, and uh, they're easy to understand. It, they may not be easy, easy to accept. That's kind of the predestination thing that a lot of people say, I can't accept that. It's too hard to believe. No, it's not. It's, not, it's easy to understand what predestination is. It's just hard to accept it because sure. of, of the implications of it, right? Yep. So it's the same thing with this. This is not a hard thing to understand, but it challenges our our uh, assumptions. It challenges our traditions, um, challenges our comfort, uh, things that, you know, and we have people, I, I get that people have a lot of um, objections to it and those are fine, but I think that, you know, when you when you're willing to look into it, you can see that that the objections that people have can all be answered pretty well. And also, like what I said earlier, um, like I said, there's nothing about my reform worldview that changed in yeah. the slightest. Like there's nothing in the confessions that that I've had to go. Well, I can't believe that anymore because I now believe this. There's, there's nothing. So <laughs> that's yeah. actually kind of a nice thing that the confessions don't really go into this because it frees me up to be able to think about things that that I might not otherwise be able to. Yeah, you shared that on, I believe it was on the Blurry Creatures podcast, which we are fans of over here. And that was a game changer for me when you said, you know, none of this changes any of that. If anything, it it deepens it, or you, you use the analogy at the beginning, it helps add color to right. what we're looking at. It's more things I can praise Jesus for doing, not less, you know, it doesn't take away any of his atonement or anything else. It, it just shows he also conquered these things too. Um, and it makes it even more glorious. Yeah, it's funny you bring up the atonement and, um, you know, so when, when, when you read about the atonement and there's all these theories of the atonement that are out there and, sure. and we love to talk about substitutionary atonement. Okay. So I still love to talk about substitutionary yeah. atonement. It's one of the great, what's well, one of the greatest things in the world. But guess what? This whole worldview has allowed me to see that the ransom view of the, of the atonement is also important. And it's not an either or. I don't have to choose between did Jesus die for my sins in a legal sense on the cross or did he free me from the captivity of Satan? And well, yeah. it can actually be both. <laughs> so sure. all of a sudden, my view of the atonement can go, poo, you know, explodes in all these different cool ways that that I, I don't get if I'm only allowed to think of one view. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. That was a, a game changer type comment when you made it on whichever other podcast it was. You're a busy man. <laughs> and so I was really thankful. It hit me at the time, too, where I was just needing something like that. So I'm very thankful for your ministry. Um, I guess as a way to to end kind of two things. One, people, we didn't even scratch the surface of this. We I wanted to talk about the giant wars and all that, but we ran out of time. That's another day. We're not going anywhere. So uh, we'll do something about that another time. But if people want to know more about this, where are some places they can look? We mentioned Michael Heiser's book. Uh, I also want to give you a chance to plug all of your stuff as well and let people know how they can read more and find you and all those kinds of things. I'll plug my friend Brian Gadawa. I do a, a podcast with him, Derek Gilbert and Judd Burton. In fact, I could plug all of their books um, Yeah, uh, because they're they're all great. Brian is a he's a reformed Christian um, who has written a whole series on the Nephilim, the Nephilim Chronicles from a fictional point of view. 
And uh, they're just, they're so amazing. And they end up with Christ uh, in his seventh book. Uh, and they, they actually go through the wars from a, uh, an imaginative storyteller point of view. So if you want to, if somebody wants to get into the wars of the giants, that's the place to go, man. He just does such a fantastic job. And, and uh, Judd, Dr. Judd Burton's stuff um, that, that he's got his books uh, available at his website. And he has some, he has a book called the interview with the giant. That's really good, but you know, his other books all kind of touch around it too. And then if you really want to look into the, the gods, uh, aspect of this Derek Gilbert stuff is also really good um Derek and I my eschatology is different so uh but that's okay his his yeah. his work on the gods is absolutely amazing the dude should get a doctorate for what he's done he's just uh he's a scholar scholar sure I really respect him a lot um and then you know my books are all at my website douglasvandorn.com or you just go to Amazon and look me up and I have other books and one of the things I've tried to do Andrew is I'm in this weird space between the super weird and the ultra conservative reform, sure. right? And so I feel like this bridge. So what I've been trying to do is I'll, I'll try and write some weird stuff, conspiracy theory, angel of the Lord shouldn't be weird, but I think it is to a lot of people, sure. um, the giant book. But then I'm also trying to write very normal stuff. I just finished a book on the creeds we put out earlier this year, uh, you know, book on baptism that I wrote from reform Baptist perspective. Um, what else have I done? Book on covenant, Reformed Baptist covenant theology. So, you know, I, I'm trying to get the people who are reformed to think about weird things. And I'm trying to get people who think only about weird things to get a little bit more grounded. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love Otherwise it. Are. You are a walking answer to that question I asked about how do we stay open minded, but also maintain <laughs> biblical foundations. You are the answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Doug. I'm going to. Uh, let you go here and let our, our listeners go. So they have, they'll have, a, this was like a fire hose of information. They have a lot to process for a little bit. Um, and so just thank you so much again, you can check out Doug at douglasvandorn.com. And uh, I recommend finding all of the places you can find him. He's a little bit of everywhere. So you'll run they into can, Okay. One other thing, they can also go to our church website. So um, reformed Baptist church of Northern Colorado, it's rbcnc.com, just the initials of our church. And, I bring that up. I mean, if anybody's looking around this neck of the woods in Colorado, Denver area, Boulder, Fort Collins, Longmont, um, for a church, we're here. But also, uh, you know, all the sermons I've ever done and, and our other elders have done are up on our website, linked all of them to audio. And most of the ones that I've done, uh, especially in the last 10 plus years, are all in PDF, too. So people can go and download those. And if if it's a weird passage and I've preached on it, it's there for people to look at. So awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciated your time. We're going to have to have you back, talk about all these other things that we just scratched the surface on. <laughs> there you go. Sounds like fun. Thanks, Doug. Yeah, you bet. So there you have it. There was our interview with the legend, Doug Van Dorn. And once again, let me just say that it was an absolute honor to be able to do that with him. I was so excited about it. Just couldn't be a nicer guy in the world. Uh, it couldn't be a smarter guy, too. That guy knows more. He has forgotten more than I feel like I'll ever know about Giants. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. That was awesome to listen to. Yeah, Brother to. Evan, what was your take on the interview? No, that was just, it was probably one of the best interviews I've heard on Giants without, like, going down into the real nitty-gritty. It was a great intro to Giants, if you will, Um, kind of yeah. the whole topic. You can tell how smart Doug is, but he speaks in a way that uh, someone could be new to this world of this kind of topic uh and feel comfortable uh listening to it and feel like they're grasping it so yeah that was that was really cool to to get to listen to um hopefully next time uh, i can sit in on the actual interviews because i'd love to have him back as a, a repeat guest with us there were some topics in yeah. there that sounded like we could probably go a little deeper on oh there's so much more that i want to talk to him about in regards to the giants and but was there anything in particular that spiked your interest or that you really wanted to hear more about or, or that you thought was particularly interesting? Yeah, I mean, I think there was a lot of them, but just uh, for the interest of time, the one that probably jumped out the most to me or the one that was kind of caught my ear, I guess, uh, in a new way was when he's talking about the how demons in a, uh, I guess that's the uh, ancient Jewish worldview at the time, uh, correct me if mm -hmm. I'm not saying that right, but that demons are thought of as the disembodied spirit of giants. 
that was something I feel like I've heard kind of glossing over in other things, but never really like heard someone kind of talk about it like he did. Uh, that was yeah. just kind of a wild concept to think through. And it made a lot of sense, too, which I think is what made it so wild <laughs> uh, is that it seemed yeah. very like, oh, yeah, this tracks. Yeah, I didn't. I did hear that before uh, the interview. Actually, I probably heard it from Doug on another interview <laughs> that he did with somebody else or in his book. And at first it was startling. I'll be honest. I was like, huh? Because I had always thought of demons being fallen angels. Yeah. But if you look, I challenge our listeners, look in the Bible and tell me where it says that. Where does it say that demons are fallen angels? It doesn't, right? It, there, there's talk about fallen angels and there's talk about demons, but it doesn't equate the two, which is interesting. And, it, you know, I'm not saying it's not fallen angels, but I do think that there's, wor- there's definitely room for that understanding of demons as the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim, which were the giants. And so uh, I do know that it's hard to say that there was the Jewish view because Judaism was very diverse. Sure. But in the second temple period, which is when Jesus lived, there is a lot of writing that lends credence to that having been the view of a majority of the people in that area around the temple at that time. So super interesting. I know another part that was really uh, interesting to me is as a Reformed pastor, having gone to Reformed seminaries, I always heard what's called the Sethite view, and I, mm. um, which is what what Doug was talking about, where it's the line of Seth and the line of Cain getting married. And we were just kind of told that's what, that's what Reformed folks believe. Yeah. Uh, so it was kind of cool to hear that for like the first, I forget how many years Doug said, but like the first 250 years or so, first three centuries of the church, the only view, like literally the only one we have any documentation for is the view that Genesis 6 was about the mating of angels and humans. And so I found that super interesting. That doesn't mean it's right, right? right. But it, it shows us that that was at least the first thoughts from the people closest to the time of Jesus. Yeah, the Sethite view is the modern view. Uh, that's not the historical view. Right, exactly. And uh, so I thought that, that gave me a little bit more freedom to <laughs> believe the Nephilim view and feel like, okay, I don't have to abandon church history yeah. to believe this view. Uh, it's not as whacked out as it seems. And there's a lot of solid authors out there, solid thinkers, solid theologians who have that view. And so that was really helpful to me. Yeah, I, I just can't speak highly enough of Doug and my time with him. It was just such a, a wonderful time. Again, couldn't be a nicer guy. I, I caught myself a few times like forgetting I was interviewing him <laughs> and just like learning like in a lecture, like just any of you listening. I was just like, whoa, 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 and wanting to learn more. So you maybe have heard that. But yeah, we hope to have Doug back on the show. You should go check out all of his stuff, douglasvandorn.com. Um, you can find his books on Amazon. I highly recommend Giant Sons of the Gods. Uh, also recommend my friend's book he wrote with him, which is The Angel of the Lord by Doug Van Dorn and Matt Foreman. You should check those books out. That's the best way to show support for, for authors and artists is to buy their stuff. And right now, I believe most of Doug's books are on Kindle Unlimited if you have that subscription and want to read it, which means it's free to you if you have the subscription already. So, so check no, excuses. <laughs> no excuses. No uh, excuses. Easy to read books with so much information in them. Brother Evan, anything else you want to add about Doug or the podcast? No, just just want to uh, reiterate uh, how thankful we were for Doug to take time out of his schedule to jump on that interview and to show us encouragement in what we're doing. Um, that you know, I mean, there are others out there doing it that know more than we do, even, uh, and that he yeah. was willing to contribute though to our little piece of this world that we're in. So that was just something really cool. Thanks, Doug, and as always, thanks, Rob Lowe.